Hello all, welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which, as always, we are pondering the work of art and the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we're continuing our series of star studies. Um, it's a series we call Great Old Broads. And we're talking about one of our personal pantheon of women actors, the fascinating Vivian Lee. And I just want to start off with a quote. It might be my favorite quote from her when she talks about being a Scorpio, a true Scorpio. And in her characterization, that means we sting and sting and sting ourselves to death. And I've always <laughs> loved how dark and occulty <laughs> a quote that is and how atypical of stardom that she goes that <laughs> that yes. dark in fact we are calling this episode on vivian lee scorpio rising which i think is very appropriate and we've just been talking before we started about how oddly angsty we both felt before <laughs> doing this episode so let's talk about that what's wrong with this i don't know like i just uh, i don't know if it's like carrying the weight of responsibility <laughs> We're talking about our favorite Vivian Lee, yes. <laughs> or oh. or I don't know, just the fact that these are, um, uh, I don't, yeah, maybe just like the feeling of inadequacy <laughs> when describing yeah. her allure or the types of, or or her image. You know, it's right. so, um, yeah. Yeah, the first task <laughs> we set ourselves, which is to do that, is is the hardest. And by the way, it should be noted. In this case, it's not just us obsessing. There are so many books out now on Vivian Lee. Yeah. And more coming out all the time. She has like three or four bios. But plus, there's these new archival studies. But we're going to talk about those later. And Ugh. I just literally found out there's another one that just got released in March. Christ. And I thought, if anyone's keeping up, Dolores and I are keeping up. And they're just cranking them out faster than we can keep up. So I know. A, I'm like, add yeah. to cart, add to cart. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's a larger fascination that, that is not just ours, though ours is the better, the better fascination. And we'll get into Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So, and I mean, uh, well, carry well, on. We, well, I was, I just want to be proud of our title, Scorpio Rising, mm -hmm. because a lot of this new work is yeah. academic stuff, and that's always bad. And, it, <laughs> you know, it's like it's part of this archive studies thing where everyone's obsessed with, like, theorizing the archive. Like, it's been done. Leave, leave Vivian out of it. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the tendency of those studies is to emphasize work and um, what kind of materials are in the archive. And that is not what stardom's about. I'm sorry, everyone. Stardom is actually not about labor. Stardom is about myth. Stardom mm -hmm. is about the blurring between off-screen and on-screen and mm -hmm. building up images of people in your head. We don't know Vivian Lee. We don't purport to know Vivian Lee. Um, we are very familiar <laughs> with Vivian Lee. She was myth. very organized and, and did a yeah. lot of stuff well. Who cares if her, like, it's fascinating oh to look at her date book or some shit. Right. But, you know, Dolores and I very eagerly went out and read a book called, and we are getting into it because we're so resentful. We're going to yeah. get into it right now. Let's do it. It's, it's called Vivian Lee Actress um, and uh, Actress and Icon, and it's by Kate Dorney and uh, Maggie B. Gale. It's a 2017 mm -hmm. book, and we, we rushed out to read it together, and we were both horrified. It's this <laughs> collection of essays that are on topics literally like that. She, right. you know, people want to emphasize her beauty and her mental illness, mm -hmm. but what's really important is that she worked really hard <laughs> and you're like, that's oh not God. what's important. No, it's, it, I mean, like no. probably everyone who achieved international fame worked pretty hard, probably worked pretty hard <laughs> and literally things like, look how organized she was behind the scenes, right. how, how <laughs> she was able to handle running a, you know, a major estate owned by her and Lawrence Livia entertaining all the time. And she was very organized. And you're just like, do people care? 
do people care about this? It's oh amazing. My God. Oh, it's such a fucking snore. And like, <laughs> this is this is like an academic trend. I don't know for how long, 20 years, maybe like 15. Mm. It, it had one important thing to say, which was to critique the archive. I think this is like Derrida's fault or something. Mm. And yeah. And, um, you know, the insight was like, hey, guess what? What we think about stuff is influenced by what remains to us or what is um, curated in mm. archives. Mm. Very good point. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Not worth theorizing mm. for 20 years <laughs> using like specific <laughs> concepts, especially not about stars. Okay. You know, like maybe the archive of like um, papers relating to like Thomas Jefferson or the Emancipation po- Proclamation, those things, you know, those archives matter. Pay attention. The Vivian Lee archive, like, God bless, I'm more interested than anyone on earth, but we don't need to theorize it. It's okay, you know? (laughs) And not to the extent that you truly want to push to the side the dominant aspects of her star image that continue to be the source of fascination. That drives me mad. Exactly. Why do you want to not emphasize that wonderful sense that she's as beautiful as a piece of crystal, but with this tiny hairline cracking that you can see from the very beginning that just is like, oh! That's a little too much. In fact, it's a lot too much. Yes. That's the fascination. So why would you want to say that doesn't matter? What's important is to know she was a hardworking lady. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's totally deny what's important about what's important about stardom yeah, is the way the myth circulates in the culture. That's what's mm-hmm. important. That has that sheds light on what we think about all the intersections of, you know, power, femininity, art, entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> that the image is part of this mm-hmm. other shit, like emphasizing that she worked because that fits some like what 1980s feminist <laughs> agenda. Like what year is it? Like, no, that's so, uh... it, it's so reductive and not even the question. I think that question goes back to the desire to quote no Vivian Lee. And guys, we can never know Vivian Lee. We didn't know her. We don't know her. So mm. you can read her date book and, you know, you're not going to get that. It's it doesn't it's less. Let me put it this way. Her date book, and even if you cataloged everything she did every Mm -hmm. hour of the day, and someone has done this for Judy Garland. There is a book called Judy Garland Day by Day, and it's literally everything she ever did every like pretty much every day of her life since she became famous that that i mean although impressively obsessive that has nothing to do with the meaning or importance of judy garland the meaning Mm -hmm. and importance is the myth you know Mm -hmm. and like i just want to i need to quote from james Mm. davies who's like this wonderful um a uh, professor at Berkeley who writes stuff about divas. He's he's in the music department. He writes about opera, but he's fighting this a similar current where people are writing all of these biographical articles and biographies of opera divas emphasizing the work. And he said, you know, um, one of the prevalent assumptions in play here has to do with the idea of work so commonly overvalued in Anglo-American scholarship as the final purveyor of human authenticity or worth. Indeed, are the best virtues always Protestant? Do women always find true identity in hard labor in the dignity of work? You know, I mean, thank you. Feminism is throwing its, you know, lot in here with the idea that work is the only thing that defines a human being. That's ridiculous. Mm. Yes, you are the value of your productive labor. <laughs> exactly. And it doesn't matter what the layer is. Right. You know, is or what meaning it produces. Is yeah. it, is, yes. Or is it, you know, acting? Yeah. yeah it's all the same. You labored. <laughs> you labor and that is, I labor, therefore I am. <laughs> 
Yeah. Right, right. And like, the, okay, I'm gonna, I'm sorry, like, I'll probably shut up soon. But like, Eileen made me, we reread this. And I'm just like mad again. Like, this is the introduction to that Vivian Lee book, Actress and Icon by Dorney mm. and Gale. And in the intro, they're, they're critiquing the idea that her achieved celebrity, like in the minds of the public, is not just shaped by her professional accomplishments, but also by her social nor- notoriety. And it's like, yes, that is the definition of stardom. It is an off screen and on screen dynamic and the way those things come together to create some kind of image like mm. maybe you could read like Richard Dyer mm-hmm. like with Star Studies 101 man like mm-hmm. I, like why would you critique that like that's what it is <laughs> like yeah. if you're mad about Star's personal lives being like part of the <laughs> equation this is probably not your field you know like <laughs> yes. you wandered into the wrong arena baby yeah <laughs> wander out again find the exit (laughs) maybe you should pursue the papers of margaret thatcher like someone whose personal life really shouldn't be like you know a big part of the equation but like celeb god it's like just so mind-numbing i just don't even oh my god it it hurts my brain it does (laughs) and it it really takes us back to the days it seems to me in a in a in a somewhat different way with uh, at a different angle but to the days before richard dyer richard dyer is the pioneering star studies guy he writes the first important book which is called and i'm always forgetting is it just called stars or is it just called stars just Just stars Stars. yeah before then there was this this nervousness on the part of film studies scholars that they didn't want to get into anything that smacked of fandom because then that wasn't going to be serious. That wasn't going yep. to be academic study. So they avoided talking, <laughs> which is a hell of an avoidance if you go to movies. Right. Wow. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> um, and this is like another way to head back there. Like we're just going to undo all of the quite intelligent ways of approach. Thank God it was Dyer who got there first and says all sorts of brilliant things that in yeah. fact you can read and go, yeah, it, does feel like that even if you weren't immersed in academia i think you'd recognize um in how he's describing how stardom works and how you react to it that seems about right the idea that we're going to now unspool this slyly but through film studies and come back out the other side where we were is kind of horrifying right stars as mere laborers or whatever the hell kind of crazy thing we're doing is oh my god it's yeah. and and like maybe we should clarify because we critiqued the Tina Turner documentary and the Billie Holiday film mm. for not showing their sort of moments of artistic inspiration and genius. Mm-hmm. Like we were interested in seeing how Tina Turner, for instance, came up with all that choreography for her for the Icats that's uniquely her. Um, she personally designed her, designed her look, you know, her like super memorable iconic look, and there was like none of that was featured and. Same with Billie Holiday. Like, when did she figure out she could sing? When did she figure out what a talented woman she was? This is different from the question of work. A mediocre performer or artist can log in a million hours. They can work real hard. (laughs) But it would be uninteresting to know about their process because the product isn't particularly interesting. So this question of like showing the artistic processes of of women is a different question from emphasizing the value of work. And I want to make that distinction. Because it's all about how does this accumulate and accrue toward stardom <laughs> right um sure of, i mean i guess what we're saying is of course there's labor involved mm-hmm. but you, you're not fetishizing the labor for labor's sake exactly you know, it, it's, it's it's like how is the stardom built what is the stardom 
me? What is it about? Why do people care? Yeah. And if it falls apart, how how and why? Or if it morphs and shifts somewhat, how and why? And what what is what are the new what's the new expressivity? What's the new meaning generated? Right. Because if it's just wow, they sure were organized behind the scenes. Nobody <laughs> goes to see that. Right. <laughs> no. I'm here for her date book. I here- want to see her be an organized woman because that's important. <laughs> and you know, right. and see that virtue. a lot of work went into this. And like, All right, that does, right. Yeah, it's truly of the not mattering. Who cares? Oh I don't God. care if she slept all day and improvised when she got to the theater or on the set. I literally don't care. I don't care. Right. Right. I don't care. <laughs> that would actually be that actually that would be more interesting. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, right. one assumes there's a lot of labor involved. I, yes. I yes. It, it just, so all right. So we should get it. Eileen started to characterize her image. We should get into telling you why yes. why you should care about Vivian Lee. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And you know, you I remember once you said something very striking. You compared her to some sort of goddess figure. And I'm forgetting who I keep thinking. Circe, Persephone, who was it? (laughs) And it was perfect, and I wish I could remember. Because there is a kind of, as I tried to indicate with that Scorpio quote, there's a kind of occulty, supernatural... Definitely. I don't know. There's a, you know, George Cukor referred to her her great wildness. There Mm -hmm. seems something. She had such a perfect ladylike surface. If you look at a lot of photos of her, she's always impeccably dressed and coiffed and... You know, everything accessorized beautifully. She has amazing taste. She's always lovely, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But within that is this play of what? Uh, uncontainable temperament. She becomes yes. a fascinating study. She, in fact, gets the gun with the wind roll because of the storminess of her face that you can read through her eyes, through everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's within this perfectly beautiful, and that's, and that's perfect casting for the character of Carol O'Hara. Who's got all the ladylike training of the Southern Belle, right. but is inside this raging torrent of forbidden emotion that she's going to be constantly torn between the two things. That's it. That's it. And I, I don't remember my my brilliant insight. We were probably like twelve drinks in. So, um, <laughs> but I do. I um, everything you said, and you know, great stars represent great conflicts. And Vivian's contradiction is precisely this outward refinement contrasted with an inner wildness and it relates to her upbringing as a as an english woman <laughs> and she's um she was the she was the daughter of uh an englishman with irish roots and a mother of mixed ancestry who grew up in india and there were rumors about her mother for a long time that she was maybe half Indian, half British. Mm -hmm. Um, She was, she was a very beautiful woman, um, but had dark wavy hair, just like Vivian. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually new research has um, shown that she's actually Armenian, half Armenian. And Mm -hmm. it was just like Cher. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Important lineage. Mm. Um, But the reason it was buried is not just because um, Armenian, you know, was some sort of flavor as non-white if you're a Victorian British person, Um, but also because the Armenian side of the family had the strain of madness that Vivian inherited. Hmm. And she had an uncle, her, her mother had an uncle who, who did go, you know, what they called back in the day, mad. Vivian Mm -hmm. was later diagnosed as a manic depressive before they really had, um, 
ways to manage that illness, but at mm-hmm. least she was born into the time where, you know, for her, it, she went to a psychoanalyst. So mm-hmm. psychoanalysis and psychiatry existed. Um, and she had a little more help and understanding than her poor uncle. So that mm-hmm. side of the family was buried in a very Victorian way um, due to this madness that they thought was hereditary in her case tr- turned out to be the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and so should we say she was she was a daughter of the Raj? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And you know, with all of the of the of the oddities that were then considered normal for, you know, pretty affluent they were pretty affluent, right? Her father was a broker, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, um you know, proper British family, they would you know, send their tiny children off to boarding schools and convent schools. She gets sent to a convent school and she's I think six. Yep. And to now, it's just like, are you kidding? It's so shocking. But it was completely normal for the upper, especially for the upper classes. That's what they did. Yeah. Um, yeah. They only so. visited her like once a year, her parents. And sometimes her father didn't come at all for just like years on end. Right. Yeah. So right away, there's this just sharp break. <laughs> and and the, the managing alone in a total. And in this case, her mother, I guess, was a devout Roman Catholic. And so, of mm-hmm. course, the, the con- very strict convent upbringing. Um, that she experiences that, you know, of course, creates another pressure on her, mm-hmm. um, you know, in in the in the kind of wild showbiz life she's going to wind up leading. Um, she's always got the, you know, the, the, you know, the Catholic uh, Catholic conscience there to to berate her as well. Yes. And, yeah. and the convent is where she learned her fastidiousness, mm-hmm. as as the archive has taught us. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Oh, my favorite <laughs> example of that is. You, you, I think you covered yourself even when you bathed and you placed a, a, a clean white cloth over your, your used, you know, clothing, your under thing. Yep. So there was all <laughs> of this weird body shame <laughs> thing that was going on in, in those kinds of education. So pretty dramatic um, yes. way to grow up. Yes. And, and Vivian, who will develop into a young woman with a very se- uh, happy sex or healthy sexual appetite, will mm-hmm. be tormented un- undeniably by this, <laughs> by mm-hmm. the rules of this upbringing. Right. But I, she was a very, despite the sort of like misery of being separated from her parents, she was very well liked, um, mm-hmm. a, just like a stunningly gorgeous child. She looks like, you know, the cover of the secret garden or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, you know, Ed- Edwardian sort of like idyllic looking kid. The nun adored her she was allowed to have a kitten at school Mm -hmm. she was very charming and she was ambitious from the beginning she wanted to Mm -hmm. be an actress from the time that she was like conscious Mm -hmm. um and you know she was she was fairly talented as a tot although certainly not you know no one was like struck by any particular genius but she was so beautiful that you know it seemed within reach Mm -hmm. absolutely and And and, and, and isn't she in convent school is it or or boarding school when she meets Maureen O'Sullivan? Yes, I was just gonna say that. Oh, yeah. carry on, carry on. No, yeah. no, just Mia Farrow's mom. They were schoolmates. They both went to the convent at Roehampton. Right. Um, yeah. And I think Maureen O'Harrell, I mean Maureen O'Sullivan, precedes her into into acting. Right. Yes. And they're both. You know, but Maureen Maureen O'Sullivan says, "Oh no, clearly Vivian. Everyone thought I was pretty, but Vivian Lee was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen, and anybody ever seen." So, yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And she and, you know, uh, so th- and things came very easily to Vivian. She was a, an mm-hmm. accomplished linguist. Um, she went to finishing school and traveled around Europe. You know, she was a very sophisticated young woman, uh, very pretty. And she was scooped up um, in marriage by a young British bear, not a young, well, young in the scheme of the world, but older than she was. 17 years yeah, older or something? something like 15, 17, something like that. Yes. Considerably. Yes. <laughs> yes. She was only 19 or something like that. 
Oh God, like 18 when she married him? Maybe she was 18, yeah. Yeah, yeah, quite young. Mm -hmm. Um, He's very handsome. He looks like Leslie Howard, who played Ashley Wilson in Gone with the Wind. she says later, she compares him frequently and says, yes, he was like that. He was, you know, the soul of honor and all that stuff. She she enacts Gone with the Wind before before she's in it, really. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And and Lee adores her. And, um, but you know, she's got a a lot of living to do. So she- She has. A, she does have a child at nineteen. She does not take to motherhood naturally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. she loves her child, but she's you know she's young and she wants to be out and she has ambitions to be an actress. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, and not he the most. Is not impressed by theatrical circles at all. He doesn't want any part of this. So there's you know a certain amount of tension. And and I I think it's quite interesting. We'll get to it in a bit. But when she fin- they finally divorce, he gets custody of the child. Which yes, is remarkable. That's unusual for the time. Right, right, and he, but he's very patient, and he, you know, we'll talk about their divorce eventually, uh, pretty mm-hmm. soon. Um, Vivian had a, a an affair with Laurence Olivier, um, but he's he, Lee Holman, her first husband, loved mm-hmm. her until the end of his life. They even, you know, they were very civil and vacationed together, and so he was a presence up until the end. And she got, she took her last name from his first name, so she was born Vivian Hartley. Um, she mm-hmm. she changes the A in her first name to an E, so it's V I V I. E-N, and she takes the last name Lee from Lee Holman, her husband, as a stage name. And from from all, really, she lands, you know, she goes to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Um, oh, fresh out of school, she mm-hmm. gets cast in a play called The Mask of Virtue, mm-hmm. where she's playing a, a duplicitous, uh, you know, I think like 18th century, mm-hmm. what, French yeah thing um (laughs) whatever you know it's it's perfect is yes it's perfect and she's so stunning if you see you should really look up just just the image the photo image of her she's so stunning that people are saying to each other you have to go see the mask of virtue just to see this young woman yes (laughs) she's just such a staggering beauty even at the distance the stage imposes that people are just agog and of course Laurence olivier winds up going to see her in the mask of virtue and saying things like her neck was so long and slender. It, it was so flower-like. It seemed as if, could it support her head? I mean, <laughs> this is like ridiculous, ridiculous pans to her, her physical beauty. Yes, and maybe we should describe her. If if you've, you know, again, if you are have been born under a rock and never seen Gone with the Wind. Um, <laughs> or Streetcar Named Desire or... Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, so Vivian's looks are, they kind of embody the contradictions that, you know, her myth mm-hmm. um, is is known for. She's got, you know, this really dark hair that's uh, kind of wavy mm-hmm. and uh, these very light eyes and very sort of like chiseled bones. And, and you know, the eyes are just like electric blue. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And very kind of porcelain perfect skin. She's, she has such perfection of feature. It's a little eerie she's a photographer's dream many top photographers are kind of vying <laughs> to mm. do photo shoots over i mean one of the one of the few essays we liked in fact <laughs> in in the book we were just destroying um <laughs> was all about i think four different photographers and their four relationships to her and how they conveyed her etc mm-hmm. um so there's a million nine million photographs of her to study and, and some are so marvelous and striking because they're the ones that actually capture that contradiction that's yes. so exciting. All that kind of weird, vivid ex- excess that makes her seem kind of like, I don't know, um, a, a particularly riotous goddess trapped in human form, a very beautiful human form. Yes. Um, yes. And all, the, all this kind of very stormy, difficult relationship to life 
that seems odd in such uh what a, a young woman who clearly is going to live a life of prestige, wealth, mm-hmm. and admiration, and all these other things, but somehow that isn't that's not going to help mm-hmm. all the other characteristics. So it can be very moving in the right photos. Yeah, definitely. And she she always she does have a um like a darkness about her and I don't know Mm. how to describe that but there's something about her gaze like I think it's important that she's British it lets her Mm. off the hook by being such a kind of troubled beauty figure I think Mm. that was kind of only allowed to foreigners and in the 30s especially Mm. in Hollywood um What's interesting is she's not that foreign because she, you know, British is close enough to American Mm -hmm. and she she's famous for playing Americans on screen, although she played many, many characters in the theater. Um, And there's she kind of picks up where Garbo leaves off in in some ways. She in her indeed her face is like it has a lot in common with Garbo's and that she's got like four faces like you can Mm -hmm. turn her different. Right, different directions for the camera, and she looks like different people. She'll but, always be gorgeous, and she'll always be compelling. But she'll look, yes, you'll be like, wow, that's a whole other self that just came into focus. Yeah, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's part of this divided self that is so mm-hmm. much a part of her. I mean, it's you know, it's it, implicit in her looks too. Mm-hmm. But I guess I think she's Garbo esque because she can play tragic heroines and and does that's her type, mm-hmm. you know. So um, and being a kind of sexual transgressor is 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 that's not that unusual um a thing but she's got a a particular version of it of being torn in particular ways yes because uh, she's always a lady yes yeah so unlike ava gardner who we're covering in this series who Mm. just seems like a wild you know creature out of the forest um (laughs) (laughs) or i don't know whatever like i you know um out of the fresh out of the tavern um (laughs) vivian is a much more yeah she's like um a much more aristocratic type who's always battling with her, um, I don't know, what what you think are probably her own personal, um, mm. yeah, and values and how her mm-hmm. demons are in, mm-hmm. in conflict with them. And the beset by <laughs> so. demons thing is a really good thing. Because again, it gets you to this weird occult edge that, that, that she has. <laughs> right. Um, um, that, that Ava Gardner doesn't. Ava Gardner has mm-hmm. still got all the the irreverent belly laughs and the the, <laughs> the the you know great let's have a great time quality. That even if if Lee even has that, and she had a body wit, she swore yeah. a lot, um, etc. It doesn't come across as part of her image in the way that it does with Ava Gardner. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, a very brief overview of the career, like mm-hmm. Vivian plays roles like, of course, Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with mm-hmm. the Wind, but uh, Cleopatra, uh, mm-hmm. both Shaw and Shakespeare, mm-hmm. uh, Blanche Dubois, Anna Karenina, mm-hmm. um, Camille, you know, mm-hmm. people like that. <laughs> so that's that's her image. And right, so and, and one of the tragic lost roles, we'll get into lost roles, but I just want to mention one that she was perfect for and she desperately wanted to play Kathy in Wuthering Heights and it, it's so perfect for her Ugh. and she wanted to play opposite Laurence Olivier her great love mm-hmm. and they you know for all sorts of reasons she she wasn't going to get get that part no matter how hard she fought and he fought they couldn't get her cast so Merle Oberon plays it but she was born to play Kathy so it's yeah. a, a haunting thing I mean Kathy literally winds up a ghost a presence that is haunting Heathcliff after life and she's <sighs> torn in exactly the way you know, she's torn between the life of a wealthy, you know, admired young woman who wants all the physical trappings and all the adulation, but she's essentially at home on the moors, living mm-hmm. a completely wild, untrammeled life with Heathcliff. 
and she can never resolve it. And of course, of course, dies young because of that. Dies young and tragically. So it's 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 as if it were written for Vivian Lee to play it. She doesn't play it. So God, that's so true. And it well, so that film came out in 1939, Weathering Heights, yeah. the same year as Gone same with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Would have been imagine? quite a conflict. Woo! Yes, <laughs> trying to do both. Yes. <laughs> if only. If only. Yeah. Yeah, but she she like really fame comes easily to her, so she yes. has these early theatrical successes. On the like Mask of Virtue makes her a star, right? As far as I can tell, she's already a stage star before before you could blink an eye. Yeah, yeah, and then there's the you know the great uh, British producer and director Alexander Corder. Cor- Corda. Corda. Alexander Corder. <laughs> um, Alexander Corda <laughs> uh, puts her under contract, um, mm-hmm. and she she. So another part of her image is she's got great ambition and she finds a way to make herself visible. She gets a lot of uh, bit parts and Mm -hmm. she does things like, you know, find a hat that's going to really set her out amongst the others so that Mm -hmm. uh, eventually Corda sees her photographed, you know, in a crowd of girls. She's like an Mm -hmm. extra in some film. And he decides to, you know, who's that girl? And he gives her a contract. She does this time and again. That's basically how she gets gone with the wind. Mm -hmm. She knows how to look good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And dramatically present herself in a way that's going to make a big impression yeah yes exactly. mm-hmm. and, and yeah, she's telling every everyone she's so convinced of how much success she's going to find she's telling everyone she's going to star in gone with the wind with yeah. a couple of years before when she reads the novel and everyone's like what she's like no i'm gonna play it right, right. So, yeah <laughs> yeah vivian so vivian's born in 1913 she becomes a, a theatrical stage in the stage a theatrical star in the mid-30s mm-hmm. and gone with the wind is written in 1936 and mm-hmm. it's the book that everyone in like the english-speaking world is reading mm-hmm. and vivian in 1936 is all of 23 years old mm-hmm. um unknown outside of england and she's yeah, like she's doing she is you know being getting getting a build-up in in films in england though she's, she's she getting is. bigger and bigger parts but in america nobody knows her nope yeah so and, it's it yeah it's quite daring when after what they do a year search to get maximum publicity they call it the search for scarlet era and uh-huh. everyone everyone who's famous every woman who could possibly or even impossibly be scarlet era yeah auditions every stranger audition it's it's an insane thing and, it, and part of what i like about it is it's both a clever publicity stunt mm-hmm. and true they literally right. don't have Scarlett O'Hara. They just don't have one. Yeah, they yeah. begin filming Gone with the Wind, uh, which is produced by David O. Selznick. Gone with the Wind is actually an independent production, which people forget. It's produced by Selznick Pictures. It was distributed by MGM, and they got some help from MGM, but it's not It's not a big studio film. Mm-hmm. Um, and Selznick starts filming The Burning of Atlanta before, <laughs> before they cast the lead. They're, and they're thinking <laughs> of people who are, it's crazy. They're, their finalists include Paulette Goddard. Oh, God. Joan Bennett. And yeah. I like Joan Bennett a lot, but no way. Yeah. Jean Arthur, which ah! is like, what drugs are you on? That, that, <laughs> that's the worst thing I've ever heard that can't possibly work. Yeah. Um, so it was a really bizarro hunt, which was getting them nowhere. And mind you, top people are campaigning. Catherine Hepburn thought she could play it. Betty Davis silly. wanted it. I know. Silly, silly. All wrong. All wrong. Yeah. You know, yeah. so they really were in a spot. They were in a terrible spot. They, it was probably going to be Paulette Goddard. Dear yeah. Lord. I, and it would, I mean, I'm, you know, probably would have still been a good film, but, uh, but she's, she does not have what no. Vivian Lee brings to Gone with the Wind. No, <laughs> no. But, but no. how Vivian gets there is through her new lover, Laurence mm-hmm. Olivier. Mm-hmm. 
And so they begin an affair. Vivian's still married to her, you know, bar- patient barrister husband. Mm-hmm. Um, but she sees Olivier on stage in the mid 30s and just says, I'm going to marry that man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, and kind of goes, goes after. I think she goes back to his dressing room. And when she leaves, she sort of she sort of kisses him on the yep. shoulder or some strange thing as yes. if she's already claiming him. And then from then on, as far as anyone can tell, she has claimed him. And and he yes. puts it in terms of helplessness. He's like, I was helpless to resist Vivian. Any man would be helpless. And, you know, and he was married, too. Um, and it was yeah, it was it was a riveting love affair that was the biggest open secret. Right. <laughs> Probably in in England, um, right. yes. And but then he winds up getting his big move. To, he was not a respecter of of the movies. He thought mm-hmm. it was he was really very dismissive. He was he was he was using movies as a way to make money. His whole focus was being a great great stage actor. He had Titanic ambition too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and he'd v- say very disparaging things like it's it's an anemic form that can't can't stand can't handle great acting you know, he's very dismissive he was just there for paycheck mm-hmm. but you know he's getting some offers that are bigger and bigger paychecks <laughs> right yeah so that's how he winds up getting drawn across the seas to america and what's he up for again wuthering heights right Wuthering heights yeah yes yes which is his greatest performance and why because willie wyler william wyler is not having it he's not having <laughs> it. <laughs> and makes him do take after take after take after take after until he breaks him of all of his you know i can toss this off i can rely on all my flashy technique i have no respect for he even admits william wyler teaches him respect for the medium yes um and yeah he really needed a film director who was gonna like use him because otherwise his own arrogance about the medium (laughs) would kind of take over in those early years and yeah um so at any rate so he's drawn and she wants to play kathy and she wants above all to be with Laurence olivier so there's this whole move to follow um and at the same time well land the role of scarlett o'hara right just a small ambition and at at this point lee and olivier had been on stage together a number of times they were Mm -hmm. in hamlet together um you know some shakespeare some more contemporary work and they'd even done a couple films in england and um olivier's the problem is that hollywood at the time of course is quite conservative and concerned with morality clauses. Vivian has a young child and is married and Laurence Olivier has a young child and is married. So Mm -hmm. their affair needs to be hushed up. Um, But they're both, you know, Olivier is a bigger star than she is at this point. But if they're going to take on Vivian, they have to figure out how to handle this. But Mm -hmm. um, so crucially, Olivier's agent is Myron Selznick, uh, who actually invented the role of the agent. Um, <laughs> and he was he was the brother of David O. Selznick, who produced Gone with the Wind. And Myron takes his um, his client, Laurence Olivier, to see, you know, the, the kind of most uh, important thing happening in Hollywood at, at the moment, which is that they're beginning the filming of Gone with the Wind. David O. Selznick is burning down um, his old back lot, things like the gate from King Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, be, and he's going to film the burning of these sets as the bur- burning of Atlanta. And so Larry and Myron um, come down with Vivian and Myron has her sort of in mind for, he's convinced that she can play mm-hmm. Scarlett O'Hara. And Pollock Goddard is like all but signed. And Pollock mm-hmm. Goddard is like David O. Selznick's um, neighbor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're really good. They're really close friends. Mm-hmm. But Vivian Lee shows up with this big picture hat. And mm-hmm. the legend is that the flames from the they're fire. Flickering behind her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he says, hey, genius, meet your Scarlett O'Hara. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, David O. Selznick is convinced. So who knows how it really went? But that's, that's right. what they but, say. But that's the story. That, <laughs> we like that story. And, you know, I'm, story. and, you know, you can just see even from just images from the screen test that she looks so not only, Ugh. again, so beautiful, but so tempestuous that it just radiates off the screen. I mean, yeah. there's no way a Paulette Goddard can can match it. Right. She can be spirited. But she can't possibly have that, you know, <laughs> you know, witchy, torn, divided self that's going to wreak havoc. Yeah. Um, among those who who know and love her or hate her. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So you can just imagine they were like that. They must have just been like jackpot, and thank God we're saved. We're right. Saved. And and I, you know, we don't even know what to say about Gone with the Wind. We've tortured ourselves about. Oh, this we film. have at length. Um. You know, it's it is a, a like ideologically evil if you take an mm. obvious reading of it it's you know it's for it's uh romanticization of the confederate south mm-hmm. um what is interesting about vivian lee's performance is that scarlett o'hara is an unrelenting bitch a bad <laughs> person and you are cheering for her the whole time oh it's so goddamn refreshing my god yeah. <laughs> it really is what a relief what a relief yeah she's just rampaging through the landscape behaving badly yeah <laughs> and and you have have as your contrast the more typical sweet and docile you know heroine which is the melanie wilkes character played by uh uh olivia de good friend ultimately olivia de Havilland, mm-hmm. who is perfect for the part because olivia de Havilland actually could do those kinds of roles and make them seem a little less insipid yeah she could, she could inject a bit of poignance and depth and things into thing into an she actually liked playing those kind of roles yeah but so you have this extreme contrast of this is the model of what the society then wanted and frankly what the society kind of wants now. <laughs> and then there's Scarlett O'Hara, uh, who's just, yeah, what a bitch. And she's just bad. It, it opens. I just like it, it. We I think we should remind the listeners Gone with the mm. Wind remains the film that has been seen by more humans on Earth than any other single film. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to be surpassed anytime soon mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. Uh, this movie was made in 1939, which mm-hmm. in some ways is almost the height of movie watching worldwide. This is the time when film is a true mass entertainment. The average mm-hmm. American family is going to the movies at least twice per week. Mm-hmm. Everyone in your family would be seeing like at least some of the same films so when i say mass entertainment it's like Mm -hmm. different from today where we're much more atomized in our tastes you know Mm -hmm. like you would not be watching the same thing your grandmother watches or your younger sibling today Mm -hmm. but back in the day you were Mm -hmm. and gone with the wind comes out in 39 on the eve of world war and it is about survival um it's hard to redeem. Again, Scarlet survives by marrying men she doesn't love, deceiving mm-hmm. everyone she can possibly deceive, becoming <laughs> the worst kind of capitalist. Uh-huh. Um, and you're with her every step of the way. I don't know. You know, I think it just appeals to the instinct for survival, the will to live, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. No, it's just this absolute stormy, selfish drive. Yes. And that and you know again the pairing with the reason the Scarlet and Red teaming Red you know Red Butler being played by Clark Gable and you know that was the opposite of the search for Scarlet and that everyone knew it had to be Gable except yes. Gable he didn't even want it but <laughs> um, people actually believe Margaret Mitchell wrote it for him because it looks so much like him in the description. So anyway, <laughs> he and she form a couple because as she he keeps saying we're alike. We're both so we're both out for ourselves, out for our own pleasure, <laughs> out for our own ambitions. 
and we belong together. We're the renegades. We're, we're the renegades in the film. And that kind of frank acknowledgement, which he can always do, and she never can. She's always torn between what she thinks she ought to be, which is her mother. Mother is a great lady. And mm -hmm. Melanie represent a tradition. And she's drawn over to the renegade side always. <laughs> that, you know, and she can never reconcile it. And it's what makes her the fascinating character. And she's constantly getting whipsawed. As much as she does things to people, she gets, you know, everything done to her. You know, it's right. one damn, the whole second half of the movie is literally one damn thing after another. <laughs> hey, it's, it's almost impossible to watch how many crises, how many terrible things happen. <sighs> uh, it's quite a relentless film. Second half. Yeah. It, it is. And the whole uh, relentless is a really good word for God with the wind. There's, mm. you know, you can hate the ideology. Like, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, there's something about it that is so watchable. It's, it's like you compulsively watch. <laughs> it's just the way it's, it's ultimately for all the writers who are working on it, all the directors, you know, there's yeah. multiples, you know, George Cukor, um, Victor Fleming gets the credit. I think Sam Wood does some. It's yep. like they're throwing writers and directors at this thing. It's such a, a nightmare. That it's incredible that it comes out like it does, which is it just races by. Yeah. This just races by like some fever dream you're having. And it's, of course, technicolor. Yeah. <laughs> and it's dizzying and it's spectacle. And again, there's a never ceasing events, just like events, events, Titanic events all the way through, obviously, the Civil War movie. Right. Right. But and it yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, please finish. Oh, just finish and then the aftermath of Reconstruction <laughs> and, 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 you know, Scarlet's determination to rise from new poverty to back to wealth and beyond the wealth that she knew. But again, through the ugliest kind of Yankee cooperating um, ultra capital. Yes. Um, and it's vicious. She wants to use prison labor. I mean, it's just in an abusive way. You name any, any stance you could take and she's on the wrong side of history, shall we say. It's really kind of a shocker that way. So for melodramatic sweep, you cannot beat Gone with the Wind. Right. So... Um... So for Vivian, this spells the beginning of international fame. She wins the Oscar for Best Actress in 1939. Um, also, she is under contract to David O. Selznick. Um, she's got, I think, like a seven-picture deal with him as a standard mm. contract. But he, he, World War One hits. Um, he loans World her War out. Two. Oh, two, oh two. my God! I'm so sorry. <laughs> two. <That's> wow. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do know when the world wars were. Um, we know you wouldn't know it, but so <laughs> anyway, um, Selznick loans her to MGM for her next mm -hmm. film, which is next to Gone with the Wind, probably my favorite of hers. It's called mm -hmm. Waterloo Bridge, mm -hmm. and um, as as a kind of contrast to the stampeding bitchery of Gone with the Wind, which by the <laughs> way, like never happened. Like I can't even think of another female character who's so like mm -hmm. beloved and yet totally unredeemable. Oh, it's incredible! It makes her a much bigger star than than Olivier. Oh, definitely. And internationally, it's like anywhere she goes, people are yelling Scarlet, Scarlet. <laughs> yes. Mean, people are yeah. just hungry for it. Mm. <laughs> like Cruella would just like cower in front of Scarlet O'Hara. <laughs> <laughs> right. But anyway, so yeah, so Vivian um, makes another film in Hollywood. She doesn't like Hollywood. You know, she does not. And uh, amazingly, throughout her, throughout the 40s, the war helps. And we'll talk about that in just a mm -hmm. second. She, more than any other star under contract to a studio, is able to spend most of her time in the theater. Mm -hmm. And she just kind of does what she wants. And she's engaged in a lot of lawsuits with Selznick throughout mm -hmm. the 40s. And she's like, I don't care. I'm just going to do what I want. I prefer mm -hmm. theater. But 
But anyway, she does a film that she actually enjoys making with Robert Taylor called Waterloo Bridge. Um, there's an earlier version from the mm-hmm. 30s. This is the 1940 version. I ah, This film, it's, it's directed by Mervyn Leroy. Um, it's got a beautiful score. It's, it's MGM. Um, it's about, uh, it's kind of like, I always say it's like Traviata Light. Um, it's, like, it's about a, a ballerina who okay. falls in love with a soldier. It is a flashback to World War I. Um, mm-hmm. Robert Taylor's a soldier and the war hits. He has to go away there. He proposes to her, but they don't get married due to a series of, you know, things. And mm-hmm. she has to fall back on prostitution. Right. And she thinks he's been killed. She gets a notice. Yes. And it's when he, she's meeting his, you know, kind of upper class, super ultra respectable mother. She literally gets the word of it right before. Oh. And she's so completely devastated that she's acting very strangely and she doesn't want to tell the mother. Oh and the God. mother doesn't understand. And the mother thinks somehow, I, I don't know, that the, that she, she, the mother feels miffed and insulted and says, well, I try. I, I just want you to remember I tried to befriend you. And she gets up and leaves. So this is the last lifeline she had. And then she has a breakdown and she's living with a friend who has turned to prostitution in the desperate, you know, post-war years, basically. Yes. Um, um, and leaving him dead in, in despair. And realizing that this friend is sacrificing herself to support them both, she also turns to prostitution. Right. It sounds re- kind of ridiculous to describe it. It's it's magic when she's on the screen. She brings so much reality to this. I can't even convey it's the absurdity so of this. And it keeps getting more insane as a plot. But she just locks it all down. So she's this. She's this. Yeah. It brings forward all this terrible fragility. She had always been a fatalist. He has a he has a line for her. Don't yes. be defeated. Don't be yep. defeated. You know, why believe that bad things are going to happen? Well, she's right. Bad things are going to happen. And she doesn't have him to prop her up anymore. And so she just so almost just sinks to the bottom almost almost automatically. And it's she does such a great job. It's such a harrowing job. And you're thinking her as a prostitute. Vivian Lee is never going to be a streetwalker. She's too amazing looking, et cetera. But so she has to convincingly convey that she's a streetwalker, just like literally haunting places where the military, ex military, whatever comes through. Mm -hmm. Um, So they wind up meeting. She goes to a train station to pick up, you know, pick up clients, and he comes. He's not dead. He shows up and says, Isn't it amazing? You're here to meet me. way to signal she's a prostitute is she has like a, a silk a silky yeah, kind of satin like, she's wearing like satin so she has like a beret on the side of her head a fetching beret and she's wearing satin and that's the only clue that she's a prostitute which he didn't he doesn't see he doesn't realize yeah it's so coded you know because it's obviously pre- production code era hollywood yeah but and it, you know, she has to deny she whatever. So they get scooped up back into aristocratic life, and he's about to marry her. And uh, is it C. Aubrey Smith who has a who who plays a relative yes. of Robert Taylor's, and yes. um, he he takes to Myra's Vivian's name, the character, mm-hmm. and you know he takes to her, even though the family's respectable, but being a ballet dancer is a little racy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tells her all about the the sort of military greatness of their family, and you know, kind mm-hmm. of. A, their respectability and Mm -hmm. she's tortured by her conscience and she Mm -hmm. has to, this is the Traviata part and she has to like run away. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm just going to say it, throw herself in front of an ambulance on Waterloo bridge. Like one does. (laughs) It's a very Anna Karenina moment as well. Cause it's, you know, the flashing lights as that she walks by and then before she's going to do it and plays it wonderfully. And of course later she does Anna Karenina, but this is the problem. I think this is the better Anna Karenina moment. She really pulls it off. That not only does she have to leave him, 
she has to kill herself. <laughs> yes. But it, she makes it all make sense. You know, that without him, who is who is her mainstay and her only way of feeling hopeful of the world, it makes all the sense in the world that she that she sees herself as a doomed creature anyway. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And this is and th- it's so beautifully um, oh, photographed yeah. and cut this suicide. And it's mm-hmm. very um, I don't know. It's just like beautiful and terrifying. Mm-hmm. And um, and of course, this is like, you know, this cements Lee's image as as the tragic heroine. Right, right. But then yeah. she wants to go home. Oh, oh well, yes. I don't know. Should we say oh, no? <laughs> no, I, think, I was about to say exactly that. But doesn't don't, don't she and Olivier decide to do Romeo and Juliet? Which uh, seems oh shit, RJ, I forgot. Right, I it was seems gonna... such a brilliant move because they're famous lovers now. They've been released from their marriages. They they marry each other. I think before they do this, so they've yep. legitimized their relationship, and now they're such romantic lovers. They're both stars. They're both beautiful. You know, Olivier doesn't age well. But at that, he has a brief period in time when he does Wuthering Heights and Rebecca. And what's the other, this one? Oh, Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. where he, he's, he's gorgeous too. And mm-hmm. they look right together. So the idea seems perfect. They're going to go tour around playing Romeo and Juliet and everyone will get to look at the great lovers playing great lovers. And instead, for reasons that I've never read a clear explanation of, it tanks horribly. Yeah. And they yeah. lose their whole investment. They poured all of their savings into this thing, and it does absolutely terribly. I don't know why, though. Like, I feel like the box office receipts were decent, but the critical reviews were bad. They get just get slammed. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. They're hardly remembering to show up to do their to do their acting at all. All we're seeing is the superficial image of their beauty or whatever. Right. I mean, really bad, really bad. I think, frankly, there's a rejection of they're so Hollywood famous. famous now. I agree. And too big for their britches, we're going to show them. Totally. You know, my my grandma went to see that production as oh as God. a yep, as a teenager in Chicago. I have the um program book. Um and she fucking loved it as a mm-hmm. <laughs> as a 17-year-old or whatever. So, you know, I mean, how bad could it oh, have been? Oh, Jesus. the stills are great. And I bet it was good. I bet yeah. it was really good <laughs> and the British were just miffed. <laughs> yeah. But it was yeah. America. They they opened it on Broadway. I think that's the oh. problem. Oh, yeah, that I didn't know. Yes. Oh, and they so it's to- American critics deciding to slam them. Huh. Yeah, and they toured America with it. So I think I, but I agree. Okay. I think I'm the- totally mystified. <laughs> that that's mystified. I thought it was no. the British, you know, highfalutin. No um, theater world. No, wow. it was America. Like I'm totally rebelled. Fine. I don't know. I don't know what to <laughs> wow. say about it. It, wow. it can't be that bad. It just can't be. It's impossible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then they, the Olivia's war is on, you know, and they're mm. British and obviously England's getting hit or hard, hit hard um, mm. on the home front. And mm. so they want to get, they want to go home and do something for the British war effort. So they star in probably the most famous, one of the most famous British war propaganda films of mm. all time. That Hamilton woman. When Winston right, Churchill's right. favorite film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Olivia stars as Admiral Lord Nelson. Mm-hmm. And uh, Livy, uh, Livia, uh, Vivian Lee stars as Lady Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, all Scarlet-like and temptressy. Yes. It's the scandalous I- Lady Hamilton who, yeah. yeah. And it's framed so wonderfully. It's framed when she's this, this drunken street harridan, which yes. she plays full out. Pull out. It's great to see. Yeah. And she winds up telling she's a drunken wreck. Oh, she's still quite young, but sorta. Of, you kind of can't tell. She's such a street heroine. And she's telling her story to a sort of sympathetic audience. I forget exactly how the setup is. She's telling the whole story of her great love. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and then and then she has a wonderful at the end, they come <laughs> out of this 
the whole film is the length of the flashback, and they come out and they say, and then and after, and she says, there is no then, there is no after. Yes. So once again, <laughs> as with Waterloo Bridge, her the sum of her life is this love affair. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yeah. she's she's resigned to this tragedy. Like she's, mm-hmm. you know, th- uh, these are most of her roles. I love the yeah. film. I think it. Yeah. I think it's like so beautiful. Oh, it's so beautiful and good. It really yeah. works. It yeah, really works. Yeah, yeah. It's and bald. she has the role. Hers, hers is a great role. She's a kept she, as a very young woman when she meets him. She's is she kept by this old. Corrupt yeah, old, like you know, the Duke Arist- of Naples. Aristo. Yeah, 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 and gets thrown out of his house in the most you know humiliating way, and it, 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 she's the whole show. She's great. Yeah, and this is this movie really exemplifies the difference between Olivier and Lee on screen, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Like mm-hmm. to me, Olivier and Olivier does have to age in a way that Vivian's character doesn't. But mm-hmm. as as Nelson, he's so stagey, and to me, he's fakey bad um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. vivian is so luminous and I, she's the natural screen actor olivia is not olivia is too stagey i'm not saying he can't be good on film as eileen says he's fabulous in weathering heights and a handful mm-hmm. of movies mm-hmm. but vivian is the true natural and she just right. has this like amazing communication with the camera she mm-hmm. because she's much more subtle you know he's mm-hmm. always like declaiming shit as if he's as if he's you know doing shakespeare oh um, and and he loves his technical business you know, oh my Right. example of this and and hitchcock lets him go in 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 rebecca it's marvel it becomes hilarious once you become attuned to it ah he has so many tricks so many you know wonderful things he does with his voice raising it rushing it slowing it he, he can do all sorts of tricky things even within lines but mm. uh, but but hitchcock really wants to emphasize if you've seen it's about a a, a girl who's never named who's who's you know who's kind of a nobody and she winds up marrying this wealthy aristocrat Maxim de Winter and that's Olivier and Hitchcock was really trying to make Joan Fontaine in that role feel even lowlier and more insecure because it suited her role Mm -hmm. so he lets Olivier do every (laughs) every swanky (laughs) technical trained actor trick you have ever seen and there's this one scene with her where he's proposing marriage and he's but it's very informal and he's eating something and he keeps dropping crumbs and he'll be picking them up from his lap and licking his, it looks wonderfully spontaneous. Right. But it's not. As Joan Fontaine said, he would do it, he was so trained. He would do exactly that mistake every time, exactly the same way. Oh my God. And it was so intimidating. And, and it was, and Hitchcock's like, yep, you go. It's perfect <laughs> for her psychologically. <laughs> so yes, so, you know, if there's a director controlling it and knowing how to deploy it, he could be very effective. But you're right. Overall, she's the far better cinematic actor. So of course, it adds to what's tragic about their lives together, which mm-hmm. is both value the stage far more. Mm-hmm. That's where Olivier is considered the important star, at least by some people, mm-hmm. which we'll get to. She's always being talked about, or so often anyway, in terms of, especially when they start together, in terms of how she can't measure up to the great Olivier. Right. And And neither of them value film at the same level. So her being far greater actor on film doesn't count for nearly as much. Exactly. And not to mention the fact that I'm sure, you know, Olivier was insanely jealous the the night that she won an Oscar in 1939. (laughs) And he did not. He was nominated for Weathering Heights, you know, but Gone with the Winds like got like 12 Academy Awards and she was the big fat star of it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't. So Larry was a pouty pants. And I think he, you know, I I think he made her feel inadequate in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. uh, as did the press, you know. And of course, they had talked about her beauty um, Mm -hmm. or they tend the myth, you know, of the press was 
was like she uh, she's not that great of an actor but she's a, you but know she's, she's very so beautiful, beautiful that, yeah. yeah that you like seeing her anyway yes, yeah which is so cruel because she really was able to be less impressed by her own beauty and even impatient by having it constantly talked about yep. she was from early on she was so driven to be an actor to be a great actor yes that boy she could have in that way she could have hardly made a worse move for herself than to move right in with Florence Olivier. I know. <laughs> gonna suck up all the air in the room. God damn. Yeah, really a rough, rough situation. Yeah. And but he, you know, he was notorious. It wasn't just with her. He was notoriously paranoid and envious of anyone who he thought was pulling focus from him as an actor. So, you know, reading about him and Ralph Richardson, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the, at the old Vic is some hilarious um, um, tensions. <laughs> or with Gilgood, you know, mm-hmm. as Gilgood being t- talked about as well, he may be the better actor, at least vocally, and all that kind of stuff. And it just seemed like it really stuck in his craw that he wasn't always the supreme at everything. Yeah. Right, right. But it did, for them, it did translate to, you know, I mean, I obviously there was competition, although I don't think Vivian felt that for Laurence Olivier, but I don't really know. Oh, I doubt it. She was so reverent about it. They were both so reverent about him. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yes. You know, she just revered him. She thought he was the greatest actor in the world, too, as far as I could tell. <sighs> what a waste. It's exhausting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it did fuel their mutual love affair for Olivier, or, or did fuel um, a great romance for, for many years. And they... They continued through the 1940s to become really the couple of the Mm. British stage. You know, they were the most famous actors. They were written about as much as, you know, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. Um, And they became this real entity, the Olivier's. Mm. And they just, she continued to make just a handful of films. Mm. Um, She only made 17 films total, by the way. And most of those are the early films in England. England, yeah. So after Gone with the Wind, you get Waterloo Bridge, um, that Hamilton woman. And then you the then it's a couple years until she makes Caesar and Cleopatra in England, mm-hmm. directed by Ruben Mamoulian. Um, mm-hmm. It's a weird movie, but mm-hmm. Claude Rains is in it. It's Shaw and Vivian's amazing. Yeah, great. She's born to play Cleopatra. Too. It's great. Oh my god, she's fabulous. She's fa- yeah. it's got it's got that look of like ancient stuff filmed in England though that looks mm-hmm. like everyone's really cold. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, it's actually like... a bit of a, you know, the pace set is not good. It's true. Um, so you'll get wonderful scenes um but but it just it feels like you're really slogging. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then it then you know she ta- unfortunately on the set of Cleopatra, this kind of begins the outward mental troubles. Vivian showed signs like she was an odd girl and like sometimes even though she was very popular, you know, good with others, she she would like wander off to a pond and mm. like stare in a way that <laughs> you know, like kind of made people think she was kind of odd. odd so yeah. yeah or me- she she sometimes would suddenly lose it at people. Normally very, very professional. You know, she'd suddenly flip out out of nowhere. Um and this among some anyway gave her this reputation for being difficult for people who didn't know her. Normally that was like she was the perfect hardworking professional. Right. But she was having these little lapses, it sounds like, through the 30s, but they just hadn't become full blown. Um yet. right. Right. And no one was putting the pieces together, but she slips and falls on the set of Caesar and Cleopatra. And she was actually pregnant and with Olivier's child. And and she lost the baby. And for them, you know, for her, Olivier's child was, you know, a big thing. She didn't take mm. to motherhood so naturally the first time, but mm. she so revered Larry and really wanted to like cement this thing known as the Olivier's with a mm. with an heir. Um, and she lost the baby. And that that dipped her into a a, a mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
So that was one of the first signs. And then she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. At the same time, they figured out that she had tuberculosis. Right. So um, it, she also got that maybe on the set of Cleopatra, just being fucking cold at like mm-hmm. what, wherever it was, Pinewood Studios, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so she like a lot of illness and, and mental illness and physical illness crept into their lives at this time. Mm-hmm. They continue to tour. And it's really at kind of this time that Vivian at least starts stepping out on the marriage. Mm-hmm. Um most famously with Peter Finch, who she meets on tour with the Olivier, with Olivier and the old Vic mm-hmm. um, that he, the very famous theater in London that he becomes the head of. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're the stars of this whole company. They go to Australia on a tour and um, Peter Finch is a young actor there and they have this like wild affair that lasts for years. Mm-hmm. And that's when, but you know, Olivier is playing around too. Right. And I don't know. I don't know how these, you know, the wheels are really coming work. off the cart. I mean, they managed yeah. to keep it going for 20 years. It goes from 1940 to 1960. Yeah, but it's it's the rough final whatever ten years, and it sounds like that tour was so grueling anyway. Yeah, Australian tour that it would have driven anyone to the brink. Um, and yes, Olivier always Lawrence Olivier always says Australia is where I lost Vivian. Yeah. Um. So you begin to yeah realize how long can they possibly keep this going, and they do for a surprisingly <laughs> long period of time. They go right on working together. You know, he directs the stage version of A Streetcar Named Desire mm-hmm. in England which winds up leading to her playing that great role. But, you know, as Gilgood said, I'm not sure it was so healthy for her um, to play that particular role, um, given her mental health issues, which had now by that point gotten to be clearer and clearer. Yes. Um, You know, it really wrung her out, every performance of it. And it was too close, in certain ways, too close to the bone. Mm -hmm. It's a great performance, though. Man, that a great performance. Oh, my God. And Vivian um, is the first one to bring A Streetcar Named Desire to um, Laurence Olivier. She she really she was the person who was much more interested in contemporary art movements, mm-hmm. um, you know, all over the world. And she had her finger on the pulse. She knew about Tennessee Williams. And she said, we should do this by this brilliant young playwright. And they mm-hmm. did it in London. And then she got drafted for the Hollywood film version. Um, everyone else from the cast was from the Broadway production. She was the only import from the London production. Mm-hmm. And and again, she's on the set with people like um, Brando. This will be his movie star making role. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to, she was very conscious of being um, known as a star and a great beauty. And that made her uncomfortable. She knew it made other people uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. she would do things like she showed up to the set for streetcar and for rehearsals every day wearing the same black dress and very little makeup. And she mm-hmm. did this to like de-emphasize her glamour. Mm-hmm. Um, not that she was particularly intimidated by Brando. I don't think she was, you know, they have very different acting styles that perfectly suit those characters. Mm-hmm. Blanche is much more state. She's a theatrical person, you know, mm-hmm. and Stanley is much more explosive and slovenly and perfect and for earthy. the method. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but it sounds like they could relate to each other. He was, des- he had, he was suffering from desperate desire for her. I mean, right. he was a horn dog of all time. <laughs> Really, he 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 said very colorful things about how much he wanted her and how yeah. mad, how it was driving him mad. Um, but you know, there were friendly things like he apparently did a perfect imitation of Florence Olivier <laughs> to entertain her with his brilliant, brilliant. And he was like, and most people can't do him, but Brando could do him perfectly, right? Right. So, and at one point, he said, "Why are you so fucking polite all the time?" <laughs> you know, being his methody torn t-shirt self and you know she just invariably 
been raised, drilled in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would have these kind of, you know, people who are completely different species trying to understand each other moments. But it sounds like she and um, Kim Hunter got to be quite close. Mm-hmm. And Hunter revered her and just thought it was so impossibly great. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful and great. And she she really is. I mean, it's it's one of those it's one of those you don't want to miss a moment performance because every move she makes is so right. Oh. Um, and she's so compulsively watchable. And this is a get up against Brando in his yes. great, great role. <laughs> so it's a tough thing to watch, not only because the content is is rough, but because you want to see it all. You want to be able to see everything everybody's doing. Really, really an astonishing film. Yeah, and it, like for for a series of like decades, this film was known for Brando. But I think mm. finally Vivian's performance is being uh, you know appreciated again. I mean, mm. it's not like it was like minor. She won an Academy Award for it, you know. Right, right. <laughs> like she got she got good reviews. Um, but there the film like I remember when I bought the VHS in the '90s, mm. it had Brando on it, and every quote was. Brando is electrifying. Right. Brando the great. Brando, Brando, Brando. Mm. And I was like, who the fuck is it? You know, Blanche is the lead. But right. <laughs> anyway, right. um, her performance is so nervy. It's only 1950 when she's yeah. like filming this. I can't think of a comparable film. It's so raw, so mm-hmm. edgy. Um, her like sexual hysteria is so near the surface. It mm-hmm. is bold as fuck. Mm-hmm. Um I can't say, I mean, there are, we can't say enough. We've talked about this movie like so many right. times on this yeah, podcast. So just, we shouldn't exhaust it. We've already yeah. talked about Tennessee Williams, but it should be stressed. It really is really worth watching again. I, I have a hard time watching it. That's, and it's all her for me. I mean, yeah. it's, or I shouldn't say all, but I mean, he's, Brando's great and his menace is great, but it's really the terror of what you know, you know, this is the last stop for her. You can just feel it, it her exhaustion, her, the, the, that edge of hysteria that's always there. Mm-hmm. It is just so painful to watch that I that I only watched it for our Tennessee Williams episode. I had vowed never to watch it all the way through again. Oh it's, my it's god, very harrowing. So. It is, and I mean, so Eileen's talking about Blanche, not Vivian. Mm. Vivian had like oh, two right. more decades to go. Almost. Yes. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't yeah. mean Vivian. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean Vivian. But after Streetcar, she only made three more films. Yeah. She it's really. A short, short filmography for such a great career and for so much writing about her and reaction to her. It's kind of impressive. Yeah. And it, it was almost four more films. The, the next film after Streetcar that she was contracted to do is a melodrama called Elephant Walk with Peter Finch, who was her lover, at Dana Andrews. Um, and then um, in the their Elephant Walk does exist. The young Elizabeth Taylor replaced her. Elizabeth Taylor, mm-hmm. who's uh, 20 years younger than Vivian replaced her in Elephant Walk. It's still a pretty good movie. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's one of those like takes a, a desperate planter's wife in Ceylon. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, some hot and humid. I don't know. Some, very you know. old Hollywood stuff. Very, yeah. Very. <laughs> but like a stampede of elephants does um, <laughs> does like they do tra- trample the planter's house, like the plantation. Mm. It's pretty fabulous. Um <laughs> Anyway, so that's that's thrilling. And she, but she got halfway through filming mm-hmm. and was so erratic and had a true um full I don't breakdown. Even, yeah, is breakdown. Yeah, psychotic break. Like she became mm-hmm. psychotic yeah. and had to be hospitalized and medicated. And there's some very sad stories that come out of that time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And Lawrence Olivier had to go get her yeah. in Hollywood and like bring her back to England. And in the meantime, David Niven was taking care of her and just terrified. I mean, <sighs> she was she was naked. She was mm-hmm. coming on to him. She was going into rages. She was in, he was just like, ah, <laughs> yeah. help me. Ooh. Yeah, it was quite terrifying. 
Yeah, she. There are lots of stories of uh, like of her taking on a kind of like demonic countenance yep. and like really scaring the shit out of people, like yes. getting very evil. There's mm. even this weird thing on YouTube, if you Google it, where she like prophecies something that's going to happen to someone she knows. And she literally goes into a trance, tells them something awful that is going to happen. Oh, and then it happens. Yeah. yeah. it's it, Yeah. I mean, like I, I said, a cult, witchy. Yes. Something witchy going on. Cersei. No. Who is it? You said, God, oh, I, I wish I could remember. It's driving me nuts, but it's some witchy goddessy thing. Okay. Okay. That's her. That's so her. And she really, sometimes it really is like there's too much going on in her, of, of too many selves in her to, to be held together in a single body. That's it. And that can be the feeling with, with Vivian Lee. Yeah. Yeah. So that, of course, you know, she's going to wind up having still tons of ambitious projects to go, but her, but her ongoing fragility mentally and physically, she has recurring bouts of tuberculosis. Close is going to kill her finally at a pretty young yeah. age of 53. Um, it's going to mark the rest of her life trying to manage this, this appalling set of conditions that she has. And so she and Olivier are going to do very, very ambitious stage projects. Mm-hmm. But we're getting into the era where, especially with the, cred- the critic Kenneth um, Tynan, who just reveres Olivier, starts, starts writing a series of absurdly cruel reviews that single her out for being so weak and shallow in her talent that she's actually dragging him down. She's actually dragging down his career. Mm -hmm. And it's a clear contributor to her, given how seriously, very, very seriously she takes acting. It's a clear contributor to her mental fragility for years. It seems like years it goes on. Mm-hmm. multiple perform- stage performances in England. When that, by now, by the way, he's been knighted. I think that's 1947. Olivier's knighted. So yes, it's Lord and Lady exactly Olivier. Right. And mm-hmm. if, you know, so now their prestige is, is, is so colossal that I don't know how they staggered around under the weight of it. Um, um, so yeah. So, and they're doing, you know, you know, massive productions of important productions that everyone feels like they need to attend of, of Shakespeare. They do a, they do a Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Um, that people are that people then were saying it's the greatest Macbeth ever because of him. Mm-hmm. Her her performance is much more questionable. But then only a, a trickling out later, you know, an Olivier defended her and said, "No, I think it was the best Lady Macbeth anyone ever did." Yes, but she didn't at the time get get the credit for it in the reviews. He did. No, but Orson Welles saw it and wanted her for his film version of, of Macbeth. Only. And, oh, another lost film. I didn't oh, include I know. that one. Damn. Right. And Olivier wouldn't let her do it because he wanted to do, to do his own version with her, oh. his own film version. And it's like such a loss. I oh. think Judith Anderson ended up doing it. Oh. Which would I'm make sense. I remember. Yeah, I'm, that would I'm, make sense. I think I so. I think so. But like huge loss. Oh, my God. Like Terrible. if only we had it that. Looks, she looks one, even in the stills of the stage production. She yeah. looks so great. And her, the whole conceit was the way Lady Macbeth is controlling <laughs> Macbeth is sexually. That's right. the hold. <laughs> yeah. And boy, was she born to play that. Yeah. She was legendary <laughs> sexually. We should just say that. She wow. was. <laughs> Legend. Peter Finch said, once you've gone to bed with Vivian, you can't, going to bed with anyone else is boring. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to even convey. People laughed. Her friends laughed when she plays. We'll get to Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. It's about an aging actress who hires a gigolo. 
And they were yeah. like, gigolo. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone knew Vivian Lee needed somebody, there would be a line around the block. A right. queue of men <laughs> would form outside her dwelling. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> she, so like we we both read this book called Full Service, written by this oh, yeah. guy named Scotty Bowers, mm-hmm. who um, like the, the awful Ryan Murphy Hollywood series was kind of based on this book, although the book is so much better than the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy was like a, a legendary Hollywood gigolo. He mm-hmm. slept with literally everyone that you could possibly think of. Mm-hmm. And if uh, he couldn't, felt he wasn't up to, you know, that particular job yeah, given yeah, the specifics yeah. he 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 had a vast array of young beautiful people that he could command yep. <laughs> or call upon shall we say to to provide the full service yes and, he, and he's a doll he's like the happiest hooker um yeah. he like <laughs> loved his job loved his life um mm-hmm. and yeah and he had like several people who i mean obviously he slept with everyone and he's just one of these people who could like have sex like you know seven times a day um mm-hmm. but he even he devotes like several pages to vivian um his encounter with vivian yeah <laughs> <laughs> wow. they had like he'd slept with her before but this this particular moment in the book is from the time that she's doing streetcar and uh people would usually hook up with scotty uh or often would hook up with scotty through george cukor uh the director and vivian Mm -hmm. was a big friend of george cukor's and cukor would give these legendary parties um many of them very gay but vivian and scotty found each other um and Vivian, Vivian, you know, she knows Scotty. She knows he's a gigolo and she kind of gives him the gives him the signal at dinner. And so he finds his way to where she's staying in Cukor's house uh, at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. And they have this like epic fuck fest. <laughs> like, like, That's uh, so loud that they know they're keeping Cukor awake. Yes. And Vivian Lee just keeps saying, I don't care. I just don't care. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and it apparently goes on all night. There are like 17,000 orgasms. I don't even know. <laughs> These people must be chapped. But um, <laughs> anyway, she, she wakes up, you know, in the morning, she totally turns. Like, he's very mm-hmm. sweet to her and wants to be like, you know, like, good show. Like, that was fun. <laughs> Let's do it again. Um, and and she's, I, I, I guess shame is the word for it. But she's like, you know, no, we can never do this again. And she's mm-hmm. obviously like very tortured and very guilty about it mm-hmm. um and then immediately turns again and is like my dear boy i'm so sorry you know mm-hmm. and it's like obviously they've had a, some kind of connection for hours mm-hmm. and hours and hours and um so her behavior is super erratic and again you can just see the battle you know like obviously mm-hmm. she has like tremendous sexual energy that most people would envy but she feels like so conflicted about it mm-hmm. so yes yes and again that's that's that you can see that feeding again into the the star image that just, you know, it was such an amazing era for being able to sort of take what people had, (laughs) you know, usually um, when people do star studies, they want, sometimes they want to emphasize the tension between who they quote unquote really were behind the scenes and what was imposed upon them by the system. But equally as often it's, Oh, there, there was a series of assessments and adjustments based on, the very qualities they were giving off yes. and trying to make it work that way. And she's really a case of where she's playing roles that are sometimes in the case of Blanche Dubois, dangerously too close. To right. Where she is. Yeah. No, that's such a good point because I think we think too much of the star system as like constructing stars out of whole cloth. Yeah. But, but really the genius of the system was that they, when they figured out how to highlight innate qualities, you know, right. And that's, I mean, and sometimes it's a very literal thing. You're working in aspects of of their publicity and what what's known about their lives, and of course, that's always being fed back out into the public. 
and you find a way to work that into the next film because people are interested. Yes. You just look at someone like Marilyn Monroe. As her problems multiply, as she is increasingly dr- seen to be drunk, high, whatever, in public, the, the way she's cast, the way her roles are constructed are increasingly about emotional fragility, mm-hmm. dr- drinking to excess, mm-hmm. um, tragic history with men. You know, mm-hmm. all of that's just being fed right back into the circuit of her roles. And that, that was pretty typical. Right. Definitely. And I think it relates to the way that mental illness is treated in the discourse about her. Like mm-hmm. in the, you know, up until the last 20 years, say the mental illness is definitely part of the myth. It's like mm-hmm. it's kind of like a tragic flaw of hers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can all understand the critiques of that. You know, mm-hmm. um, she's obviously more than just her mental illness, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I think the the sort of discourse has gone in another direction that's like equally not useful which is to talk about mental illness like it's a run-of-the-mill illness, like almost like, I oh, this person has chronic back problems, you know, that's not really <laughs> them, you know? Right. And it's like, well, it is not mm-hmm. just uh, not just the psychotic breaks, but the fear of having a psychotic break, you know, mm-hmm. the like constant battling with yourself and consciousness that you are double or like mm-hmm. can't, can, you know, the, the fear about lack of control, like that's... Control. that's mm-hmm. Yeah, like that that's um as much her as anything else. It's not separate from her. So there's a way that like people are treating mental illness as like separate. Like she, you know, it's it's not her. That was just her illness and we didn't know how to treat it back then and it's like it it's completely bound up in the fabric of what makes Vivian Lee appealing. Absolutely. It's a fa- it's watching a kind of fascinating. It's like watching an unstable su- su- substance that's mercury <laughs> that's yes. shifting and shifting before your eyes you can look into her, her eyes and see it mm-hmm. this incredible um um changeability mm-hmm. um that never stops being fascinating as you watch and yeah they're gonna build it into her roles literally her last role the, the thing that makes ship of fools still watchable is to watch vivian lee on a knife's edge mm. of mental illness that she's desperately trying to control and behind the scenes it's quite volatile because she's not able to fully control it She's heading clearly into another town. And she does a wonderful scene where she's, you know, being mauled by Lee Marvin. <laughs> he thinks he can take advantage of her sexually. And she's tiny and he's big. And she turns that around and she beats him. She beat him so bad with the heel of her little dancing slipper that she, you know, ripped open his face. He adored her. He thought she was great. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, that's a literal example of how it can manifest itself in film as part of the person and have all sorts of power, all sorts of terrifying power. She's really scary in that scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's she's amazing. And she's so like um, she's she does always have this. She's very witty. And in the film, she plays a, a dry sort of American divorcee. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's devastating in her because she's, you know, she's tired of everyone in this fucking mm-hmm. ship. Um, <laughs> so she always has that intelligence about her. And it's the consciousness of her uh, potential lack of control that's so moving in her. Because you can see, again, it's it's the battle that is the thing that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so Ship of Fools is the last film. They're, after Streetcar, there are two more films. There's mm-hmm. The Deep Blue Sea in 1955, which is kind of lost. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah, I haven't um, seen that one. Yeah. It's based on a Terrence Radigan play. It was like redone with Rachel Weiss like a couple years ago. To me, it seems an odd choice. It's very much of its time, although I like it. She plays a, a, again, like a, a, 
a woman who's married to some, I think like a judge mm-hmm. and she falls in love with a kind of like adventurous young pilot um, mm-hmm. that they meet at a ski resort. And um, she throws out, you know, she gives up her comfortable life to, to, you know, be with this young man. Um, and it doesn't end well for her. She, and mm. she's drinking and suicidal. So the par for the course. And she's wonderful in this film. It's she's fabulous. She gets to have like um this wonderful scene where she switches from laughing to crying hysterically. Mm-hmm. It's very memorable. Mm-hmm. Um and then and then um in 1960, she does the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, which we talked about in the Tennessee Williams episode. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite films, not yeah. one of Eileen's. Well, <laughs> but I watched it again for that and I I, I've come back around just because she's so good. Again, yes. some of her films, it's just she's so good. <laughs> I can't stand Warren Beatty usually, and I certainly can't stand him when he's calling himself Paolo and doing a bad Italian accent <laughs> and wearing weird tanny brown makeup. Yeah. Um. So I have to constantly be like, just avert your eyes. I like, Just look at her. Yeah, yeah. And some of it is shot very, very beautifully. There are some wonderful scenes. Yes. Um, just the color scheme, et cetera. And, and once again, she's going to, She's going to play suicidal, but play it more devastatingly than she's ever played it. So it's one of the great, great performances of solo. You know, she's by herself when she clearly decides in a way that isn't fully explicit. It isn't 100% clear she's going to be killed, but it mm-hmm. has the quality of someone committing suicide right. through sexuality, which you can't get any more Vivian Lee there you go. Than, than that as a capstone um, film performance. Yeah, it's it's fabulous. It's based on a novella by Tennessee Williams. So it's, you know, it's got its elements of sort of like over the top, um, kind of like rotting melodrama, um, but in the, in the best, most artistic way. Um, <laughs> and then then her final film is, of course, Ship of Fools, directed mm-hmm. by Stanley Kramer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't say, and I can't say enough good things about that film. Um, do you love the film overall, Eileen? I don't. I tried okay. to watch it again and I found it like I was just waiting for her. <laughs> I wow. mean, I love, I love Lee Marvin and I love her, but it seems very stiff to me. I don't know. Maybe I didn't try hard enough. I think it's dated, but I, I still think mm. it's interesting. It, it's, it's about a, it's based on Catherine Ann Porter's novel, Ship of mm-hmm. Fools. And it's about a bunch of people on a boat in the thirties from Veracruz mm. to somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, you know, it's like a microcosm of the world on the eve of World War II. Right. So you've got right. it's Nazis all, on People board. are saying very portentous things. Yeah. <laughs> a lot about the rise of something evil in the world and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Maybe I wasn't in the mood. Totally. Yeah. It's very social problemy, like all yeah. Stanley Kramer movies. Yeah. But he's still like he gives certain actresses a room like room to breathe, like Judy Garland mm. in A Child is Waiting, Vivian here. You wouldn't think it's the opportunity for certain people to be amazing, but it is. And like mm. Simone Signore is in it and she's so touching. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. She is good. Yeah. She's she, always good. She mm-hmm. is. She is an Oscar mm-hmm. Werner. Like who like everyone is in this film. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I, I think it's I think it's worth your time. And it's beautiful black and white cinematography. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so that's 65. And she's not only fighting mental illness at this point, and she's young. She's 52 uh, mm-hmm. in 65. Um, she's also fighting a recurrence of tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And she continues to work on the stage, but she dies at the age of 53 in, in 1967. Mm-hmm. Uh, of TB, kind of unexpectedly. Yes, it seems like it was very sudden. She was, she didn't seem to know what was coming. <laughs> right. Yeah, she got up to go to the bathroom, and and her lungs filled up, and she just died like that. Yeah. A very yeah. operatic 
death. Very, very. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. <laughs> yes, yes. And of course, Olivier, and they'd been, you know, divorced for years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they split up in 1960, comes and stays by her body. Mm-hmm. um until until they come to take the body away and um so yeah it's and you know her her it's an interesting it sounds like the man she winds up with in the last years of her life and what's his name again jack marivelle right yeah mm-hmm. um is actually very good for her very stable figure very um much more able to handle her mental illness than olivier was mm-hmm. but she never gets over olivier um so there's always and he's also patient about that that she's always got to be in contact they're they're right they, they talk to each other on the phone that there's still there's still a kind of you know the great love that's in the center of the of their lives um um sort of it gets maintained in a way that you know i find a little tragic she hangs on to this mm-hmm. adoration of Lawrence olivier but you know hell it's not my life <laughs> it's very operatic and epic of her i must say it is. It is. As you say, I live by the sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Die by the sword. So. <laughs> and that is one of the new books out. Oh, I but what? it's about it's the it's I don't know, something like, you know, the Olivier's the romance of the century or something like that. Oh my god, there's like another I'm like on Amazon getting my cart filled. Really? It's just insane. They just keep pumping out books. So I don't know what's Fine. what's up with that, but there's a seems to be a renaissance in, in Vivian Lee, all things Vivian Lee. Oh my god. I mean that's a great thing. I'm excited about that. Good. Yes, that's that's thrilling. And we yeah. just got there way early, which is so awful. Yeah, I think the big thing that happened is like the Vienna, the Victorian Albert Museum acquired mm. a bunch of pa- of her papers. So that's oh, why there's yeah, all this yeah. like this archival. All mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they're going to milk that for as long as they can saying <laughs> super fucking obvious things. Um, but I hope all these people enjoy the line on their CV. <laughs> So. <laughs> I know. I Is that know. too mean? That's mean. Sorry. Oh, come on. They're earnestly trying to make someone boring who is never I'm boring. Not- Thank you. Why? Oh my God. Why? That I. Eileen, as God is my witness, this is what I wrote on my notepad as I was oh. reviewing the introduction. I wrote, please don't bore us. Vivian never did. Yes. <laughs> so, so, God, I swear the forces of boredom are out trying to take over everything. Okay, so another way that Vivian isn't boring in this sort of like um, spate of new works coming out, there's something that came out in 2019 called The Illumination of Vivian Lee, a time traveler's memoir where oh someone God. named Michelle Bardot remembers another incarnation and claims she was Vivian Lee in another life and has transcribed her memories. So I'm going to immediately get a hold of this. This is more the kind of thing I, I want to see in Vivian Lee studies. I would yeah. I would rather read about her... <laughs> Her reincarnated <laughs> self's memories, then read about, then like theorize the Vivian Lee archive. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. That's a perfect thing. It's probably going to be a, a yeah, you wish experience, but right. that's the right spirit. It's a spirit. <laughs> Going the for that kind of occulty, crazy, exciting um, possibilities. That's way more in keeping with the Vivian Lee that we know and love. Damn straight. Damn straight. <laughs> All right, that's it for our Vivian Lee episode. Thank you, dear listeners. And of course, triple thanks to our subscribers who keep us in Southern cheer, a.k.a. <laughs> Southern comfort. That's a streetcar name desire reference. Um, if you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider um, signing up for Patreon um, for all the Film Suck, film suck content uh, instead of just the half that you can already get that's publicly available. You can follow news of the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
Join us for our ongoing series, Great Old Broads, running from August way into the fall. How far? <laughs> so many broads! So many broads! <laughs> um, but until next time, thank you all for listening. Bye-bye! Bye.